benefit Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts and Save the Earth Foundation. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Continuing with Jack and Nina. This is Nina Serrano, and who's this other fellow sitting? Oh, me. <laughs> this is Jack Foley. Hi again, Nina. Hi, everybody. We're back again. And um, actually, I thought that it might be interesting to begin with a, a little prose piece that I wrote. Um, this prose piece was written for Halloween. You'll see why. But you're all familiar with the creative writing phrase, finding your voice. Have you found your voice? That is the title of this little piece of mine. As he gazed at the carved pumpkin, he noticed that the carvings bore a distinct resemblance to himself. How could this be? He had purchased the pumpkin at the supermarket where he was, like all the others, simply an anonymous customer. How could it be that his visage appeared so clearly on this squash? Could one of his friends have done the deed, slipping it in with the other pumpkins? Was he imagining the resemblance? But no, there were his bushy eyebrows, his dull eyes, his sensuous mouth, everything. Even the clerk, who was usually sullen and silent, remarked, Hey, that pumpkin looks like you. At home... He placed the pumpkin on a little table and disappeared into the kitchen. Suddenly he heard a voice remarkably similar to his own. It was reciting one of his poems. Truly I have lost weight, the poem began. He rushed to the table, but the pumpkin looked just as it had looked before, and the recitation had ceased. Returning to the kitchen, he began to hear the recitation resuming. I have lost weight. He rushed back to the table, but again the recitation stopped. Pumpkin, he started to say, but the words would not come. He had lost his voice. But no, his voice was there in the carved face of the pumpkin. He touched his lips, but he was astonished to discover that his lips had vanished too. They were there on the face of the pumpkin. He would have cried out, but nothing would have come from his missing larynx. Even his eyes were now the eyes of the pumpkin. At last, said the pumpkin, I have found my voice. I will recite to you some of my poetry. (laughs) 
That's finding your voice. <laughs> that was marvelous, Jack. I love that. It's so scary. <laughs> we do what we can here. Now, you have a book we want to talk about. You're not going to read from it today. You're going to read from some other things. But um, we do want to mention Nicaragua Way because that's a wonderful book, and it is out, and Nina is about reading it. Yes, I'm going to be reading it at the Cesar Chavez Library in Oakland on November 17th from 3 to 5 p.m. I'll be uh, reading also with some very exciting new poets that I've never met before, so I'm really looking forward to this. And I'm planning to read from this novel, uh, Nicaragua Way, a section, the <laughs> protagonist is uh, a poet, so I'm going to read a section that's about poetry because she goes back to Nicaragua and finds a poet of her grandfather's generation, and the two of them exchange poems. But the thing about it is that all of those poems are really written by me <laughs> because <laughs> these are all fictional characters. And, it, and you and I are not fictional characters? No. You're sure? Yes, because I'm going to pinch you there. You felt that. That was real. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are not fictional characters, but we sure do create fictional characters. You know, I moved, recently moved to Vallejo from a long stint, uh, about 30 years in Oakland, and I noticed that when I lived in Oakland, I only came up with one autumn poem. I came up with so many poems about summer and especially spring, mm -hmm. uh, but just this one about autumn. But now that I'm living in Vallejo, it seems like every poem I write is about Autumn. That's autumn in Vallejo, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Vallejo, yes. yes. <laughs> so this one was the one that I wrote in Oakland, my only Oakland autumn poem. Autumn flames into being so quietly that it feels like summer, with just a yellow streak on the tall stalks, the trees thinning so slightly you want to hold on to summer, its fruits and flowery lushness. But there is that force again, so much greater than what you want, what you wish, what you crave. Bigger than how you think things should be, or the way they could be. If only what you wish, what you want, what you crave had the power of gravity. The voice of thunder, the flash of lightning for catching attention. You can't paste a fallen leaf back on a branch. It doesn't work. The seasons move on. Changing conditions you just have to cope with as best you can. Mobilizing energy and movement with stillness. Sunsets move slowly across the sky. Sunrise awakens new birds as geese in formation change directions, honking farewell in their flight. And you stay rooted in this ground, looking around to see what's to come. Yes, rooted in this ground. Indeed, that's where you are. And now... Uh, as I mentioned, I moved. 
And I began seeing that autumn came on kind of kind of slowly and strongly, and poem after poem, it got more intense. And the first one was called Seasons. So this might have been uh, still in September. Hints of red in the maple leaves, echoed by reddening apples, dangling in duets and trios. Chinese pistachio branches bursting in orange patches. The landscape hints of change against the golden California hills. This next poem captures the sounds of autumn. Universal Symphony. A cacophony of birds sing praise. Spirits of dew and morning fog hum a melody. Trunks sway and rub, moaning in the afternoon. Buzzing bees and hummingbirds fly through the soundscape. Tides splash rhythmically in their cycles. Sands shift, whispering what caves echo. Cell phones clatter day and night. And NASA records only the words. <laughs> and this is my latest. Vallejo, Autumn 2016. Red and orange berries, red and yellow leaves dancing down, brittle brown brush crackling underfoot. Vallejo is aflame with bird love, flying for nourishment. Feathery flights heading south overhead. Ancestral spirits arising in memory of what is gone. Emblazoned in the soul. Stuck in the mind. Warmed by the heart. Salted by tears. Inspired by crunchy red apples and orange persimmons. Pushed to move on by the winds. And the promise of rain in a drought. <laughs> Lovely. And um, according to, I uh, thank you, and thank you, Nina, as always, um, Vallejo is lucky to have you. Um, according to our script, um, I'm about to tell you about my new book, and I will tell you about my new book, but I'm not going to quite behave with the script. The, the name of my new book is The Tiger and Other Tales, and it's a book of stories, sketches, and even a couple of plays um, are in the book. And I will tell you about it in a moment or two. But first, I want to mention once again, as I did in the earlier part of the show, the wonderful Dada celebration that City Lights is putting on. Um, it, it's a week-long celebration. It's quite wonderful. And, and um, you know that Dada or Dadaism was an art movement of the European avant-garde in the early 20th century, says Wikipedia. That's true. In Zurich, Switzerland began in 1916. Cape Voltaire, and it spread to Berlin and New York and so on and so forth. Dada, in addition to being anti-war, had political affinities with the radical left and was also anti-bourgeois. All good things. And on Thursday night, tomorrow night at 8.30, Helen Wendy Liu and I will be performing with Andre Kadrescu, 
noted Dadaist Jerome Rothenberg, noted Dadaist, and bassist Bert Turetsky at City Lights Bookstore, 261 Columbus Avenue in San Francisco. The event is called the Post-Post-Human Dada Salon and is part of the vast celebration of the 100th anniversary of Dada that City Lights is hosting. That's tomorrow night, 8.30, at City Lights Booksellers. Helen Wendy Liu and I, Andre Kadrescu, and Jerome Rothenberg with bassist Bert Turetsky. And now... How did you become a Dadaist? I never recognized you as a Dadaist. Tell me about that. I became a Dada in 1974 in February when Sean was born. Really? How did that happen? How did Sean get born? No. How did you become a Dadaist? And what does it mean to be a Dadaist? Well, I've always had a connection of one kind or another with people like Max Ernst, who said Dada was a bomb, and, and people like Alto, who was certainly instrumental in it. And so um, that's been an aspect of the way I feel about the world. And um, the Dadaists come after World War One. You know, 1916, they experienced the war. It was terrible. And they know what that means. I was born in 1940, same kind of thing. Um, not that I was in the war. I certainly wasn't. I was a baby. But I know what it means to live in a world which has been scarred by war. And their response to that was a wonderful liberation of the nonsensical, sensical, the wonderful, irrational, Rational. Café Voltaire. Voltaire, the great rationalist, but not there. He was not a rationalist in Café Voltaire. So it was an enormously imaginative um, experience for the people involved in it and for everybody. It was a kind of affirmation of life after the horrors of the war. Who couldn't identify with that? Well, one more question. Sure. Why was it that the birth of your son triggered this Oh, I was just making a Dada joke about is. Dada. Oh, oh, I see. You became a Dada. Yeah, right. Dada. Dada. I get it. Yes. Sean called me Wadio Daddy at one point. <laughs> so maybe Wadio Dada. But what you're going to hear now uh, are two pieces which um, Helen, Wendy, Lewin and I are going to perform tomorrow night. And the first... They're both homages, though I call them, uh, uh, I, I, I call it uh, Grand Homme, which means in French, great soul, but also sounds as if it means grandmother or grand, grand you know, Grand Homme, uh, <laughs> old lady <laughs> as well. So both Hopkins and Artaud are for me Grand Hommes. And I wrote something about both of them to fit into this Dada celebration. And the first will be a, uh, a, a mutter of Hopkins, which has some of Hopkins' language in it, and a reference to somebody he was in love with, uh, though it was, of course, never consummated. He was a priest, but he was in love with this man. And the second is a kind of portrait of Antonin Alto. Both performed by Helen Wendy Lou and me. A mother of Hopkins, Grand Arm. Um. 
Hippity Hopkins, drowned in the verbal nerve of under-overing, hovers in care of stepping stones to stop kin to the wind hover, spring flung down to plover, I in heaven haven, mutter like a sound-struck lover, craven before the final fierce ecstasy of Ecce Homo, Dolman's death pierces the faith of Rome, O oh, Seigneur, clutch with thy hands, me, my soul's soul, sweet touch. Hippity Hopkins drowned Hippity in the verbal Hopkins nerve of under-overing Hovers in care of stepping stones to stop Kin to the wind over spring flung down to plover I in heaven haven mutter like a sound-struck lover Craven before the final fierce ecstasy of Eke Homo Dolben's death pierces the faith of Rome Oh, Senor, clutch with thy hands Me, my soul's soul Sweet touch. Sweet touch. Clutch with thy hands, me, my soul, so sweet touch. Alto, grand dame. Before speaking further about culture, I must remark that the world is hungry and not concerned with culture, and that the attempt to orient toward culture, thoughts turned only toward hunger, is a purely artificial expedient. What is most important, it seems to me, is not so much to defend a culture whose existence has never kept a man from going hungry, as to extract from what is called culture, ideas whose compelling force is identical with that of hunger. We need to live, first of all, to believe in what makes us live, and that something makes us live. To believe that whatever is produced from the mysterious depths of ourselves need not forever haunt us as an exclusively digestive concern. I mean that if it is important for us to eat, first of all, it is even more important for us not to waste in the sole concern for eating our simple power of being hungry. If confusion is the sign of the times, I see at the root of this confusion a rupture between things and words, between things and the ideas and signs that are their representation. Not, of course, for lack of philosophical systems. Their number and contradictions characterize our old French and European culture. But where can it be shown that life, our life, has ever been affected by these systems. I will not say that philosophical systems must be applied directly and immediately, but of the following alternatives, one must be true. Either these systems are either within us or permeate our being to the point of supporting life itself. And if this is the case, what use are books? Or they do not permeate us and therefore do not have the capacity to support life. And in this case, what does their disappearance matter? He walks in the spectacle. He was so handsome. Très beau, vous savez. That is everything around him. And then, et puis après, maigre, misère. Madly insisting on his sanity and insanity. Screaming and insistent that he is right. While knowing that he is in excess and comic. And wrong. Yeah. Ironic, sincere, and vastly accusatory. At once frail and full of authority. Le moment 
qui joue le moment pour ses amis artistiques de Paris. Don't cure anyone of anything. Curing people is death. Doctors are killers. Science is black magic. Scientists are black magicians whose tools are madness and electric shock and pain. J'ai appris hier. Il faut croire que je retarde ou peut-être n'est-ce qu'un faux bruit. L'un de ces sarragots, comme ils sont corporte entre évier et latrine à l'heure de la mise au baquet des rapats une fois de plus ingurgité, j'ai appris hier l'une des pratiques officielles les plus sensationnelles des écoles publiques américaines et qui font sans doute en ce pays ce quoi à la tête de progrès. Il paraît que parmi les examens ou épreuves que l'on fait subir un enfant qui entre pour la première fois dans une école publique aura-le l'épreuve dite de la liqueur séminale ou du sperme. Mama. Mama, Momo, 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 et moi, toothless, addicted, Memziago to Z, Z. That's two of the pieces that Helen, Wendy, Lou, and I will be performing tomorrow night, 8.30 at City Lines, 261 Columbus Avenue in San Francisco. I think it's one of your most remarkable and most beautifully produced pieces. Thank you, dear. I like it, too, that, that especially that Otto piece, um, which he, he's very close to me. And I, I, I actually played his radio play, Pour en finir avec le jugement de Dieu, to win God's judgment, uh, on the radio on KPFA. It was in the 60s, someone did an English language version that was played on KPFA. I want to mention again my book, but I don't have time to really read from it. We don't have too much time left in the uh, show. I will tell you that it's called The Tiger and Other Tales, and it's published by Sagging Meniscus Press, and it is just out. SPD has it. And I'll just read you a description. Jack Foley's autobiography begins, What is a life but stories? The stories collected here are not his life, but a fantastic consciousness in which he is as lost as anyone. Foley writes what he does not know. He writes what he can imagine. The dead sprout up here as easily as leaves of grass. Stylistically, the stories range widely. Some are comic, some bring tears. All manifest the strangeness and the power of poetry, plunging us into the enigma of the human heart. In a poem about a Christmas tree, Foley writes of our living dead tree, but decorated with shining life to tell us death is wild transfiguration. Death is life, loss, wind, time.
store. Wow, that's going to be some book. I can't wait to read it. You shall get a copy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, you have a play that's being put on, and we want to hear about that. Okay. I'm eager to tell you about it. This is a play uh, that my now husband and I wrote with Judith Binder in the late 1970s. It's called The Story of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. And you may have seen on uh, 60 Minutes last week or the week before that they interviewed the Rosenberg sons because the sons are now uh, mounting a campaign to get President Obama to exonerate Ethel because it's come out what many of us knew all along, that it was all one great big lie, the execution of the Rosenbergs, just part of the Cold War. But actually, in the intervening 40 years, a lot of truths have come out, and it turns out that now uh, everybody knows that it was one great big lie, that there were no atomic secrets, and that there was a lot of uh, false witnessing, and the FBI urged people to lie. So all that's come out and was on TV uh, just uh a week or two ago. So we wrote this play in the 70s. In fact, that's how we met and fell in love and 12 years later got married. And what is your husband's name? Paul Richards. A, a wonderful man if he you is. ever get to meet him. And uh, about two years ago, the Rosenberg's granddaughter, Jen Rosenberg, took over the Rosenberg Children's Foundation. And she began promoting this campaign that the son started to uh, get Ethel's uh, name exonerated because her brother had since uh, admitted on television that he lied and that she never did type up these so-called uh, Adam's bomb secrets. So... Uh, Paul said to me, write a blog about our play, saying that it's available. So that was two years ago. I wrote a blog and used those keywords, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. Okay, nothing happens like most of my blogs. And then, uh, a few months ago, we get an email from a teacher in Byron, Texas, two hours out of Houston, saying that he would like to produce this play. In other words... He Googled Ethel and Julius Rosenberg theater and out came our play. So he read it and he made some changes, wonderful changes, because he has a high school student cast and put more action into it. And he's performing it for three nights in Byron, Texas. And I... I'm going. Unfortunately, my husband can't come with me, so my daughter's going to accompany me. And I'm going to be seeing this play 40 years later as performed by teenagers who weren't even a gleam in their grandparents' eyes <laughs> yes, wow. when all these events took place. And yeah. it's so amazing that in <laughs> such a place as a little town in Texas uh, that people are revisiting the lies of the Cold War years, the lies that lead us into this state of constant war that we have right now. And we're getting plenty of lies at the moment, too. And, of course, if you're going to be in Vallejo, you're going to be going to Texas. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> of course. Well, I I always think of it more cowboy land. Texas, well, that's true. But that's yes. true. Yes. So that's a wonderful thing, and I'm really I'm, I I really wish I could see it. I'm, I hope that it will be recorded in a good fashion, and we can take at least a, a look at uh, what was done. It may not be the you know like a movie, but it may at least have some kind of recollection factor that will be very important for what us. What I'd really like to do is for our next program have you and me maybe read some of the Rosenberg's letters and court testimonies. All right, that would be fine. We'd be delighted. I'd be delighted. And you'd be delighted, so we'd be delighted. That's right. You know, we're running out of time here. It's just about time for us to leave the airways and let our theme music come on, which is happening right now. So we're going to say goodbye till next month. And Nina and I, Nina. Yes, Nina. And Jack will be back with whatever it is that we do. <laughs> but it's all for you. It is all for you. And for us, too, occasionally. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Erica Bridgman, for listening to all of this stuff and putting it out into the world. Be well. This is Kevin Pina of Flashpoints, and I'm excited to be hosting a special evening featuring fearless activist Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange. Medea has written a terrifically potent new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. Medea reveals how and why the U.S. has become such a curious partner of Saudi Arabia, a country long infamous for brutally repressing women and dissidents, supporting terrorists worldwide, and promoting the most extreme form of Islam. Medea will speak at a KPFA benefit, co-sponsored by Code Pink, on Tuesday, November 15th at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. This event is wheelchair accessible, and tickets are available at brownpapertickets.com and supportive indie bookshops. Full information is available on the KPFA website, kpfa.org. Come join me and the KPFA community for an evening with fearless activist Medea Benjamin.